everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We have uh, we have Nuno back with us today. We have Nuno back with us. We're uh, we're excited to go uh into machine learning, AI. What's going on with that? And Nuno is an expert in the field. Um, he's an international banking consultant and works all over the world with these kinds of issues. So really glad he's here. He also happens to be married to my daughter, Danielle. <laughs> so this is a family affair we've got going right now today. So uh, with that, and let me just say that his last name for anybody who's coming to this and didn't listen to the previous episode. If you didn't listen to the previous episode with Nuno, go back, start there. It will be very helpful. Nuno Dushnevich Cordero. If you want to reach him, which I forgot to say on the last one, he's best reached on LinkedIn. So go find I, him. I would on really LinkedIn. like you to tell everybody his full name. The full name. Come on, Nuno. Nunes. Oh, yeah, you say it. You're, I, I do it with a horrible okay, accent. Can you do it? Let's hear it. Yeah, you, you should, should do it. You should be able to say your full name, don't you? Think? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nuno Luis Batish Dushnevich Cordero. Oh, very nice. It's not good, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all. <laughs> I would even say it is good. Oh, very good. Well, Nunes, we've got you back here. and um, Wait, wait, but now so everybody who doesn't speak what? Portuguese can know how bad my accent is. Nuno, you say it. Okay. <laughs> so it's going to sound a little bit different, um, but um, it goes like this. It goes, Nun Luís Botas das Neves Cordeiro. Perfect. Oh, that's so nice. I would marry you just for the name. Well, there, there is time, Phil. There is time. <laughs> that is a nice name, man. All right. Are we done playing around? Let's get to it. Oh, my gosh. We're so serious. Oh, now. yeah. We're getting real serious. And when it comes to something I don't know anything about, it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, we've, we've talked about chat GPT and now whatever Google's version of that is, um, which I've tried using a few times and found that the, the hallucina, the hallucina, what do we, what do we call it? The hallucinating factor yeah, hallucinations, is yeah. so absurd. I mean, it just makes stuff up that look completely legitimate, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so Nunes, I don't know, maybe we should start there. I mean, is there, there going to be anything useful for, an investor anytime soon coming out of chat GPT or, or Google? I, I think so. I think, I think the, um, so the, the way some of these uh, models, these uh, LLMs, these large language models are being used, and it's not just chat GPT, there are open source models uh, that can be used the same way, is that a business can come, say a little startup, and you know, coincidentally, I actually talked to one of those uh, rather recently, but can come in and actually fine-tune those models, meaning that they will bring up their own corpus, their own text, um, and basically calibrate the weight uh, the model has um, to, um, to be more in line or more in tune with that particular uh, corpus. So, so if we if we had to bring it to like a, a real case, let's let's say you have your own research, uh, you know all the research reports you 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 go through and you read regularly, um, you could actually use that corpus of of text to you know fine tune and and and, and calibrate those those weights in that that neural net that these LLMs use, 
and and basically get a more of a, a customized answers to your specific domain. Uh, and this is this is being done, uh, and I think it's it's actually uh, probably the way to monetize uh, many of these models, given that there are open source models, meaning that they're out there, anyone can use them. Uh, so ChatGPT no longer has uh, you know the um, uh, the sole you know uh, uh, property of of, of these things. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it's a good way to monetize these models, basically having business come in fine-tuning, and then, uh, you know, taking them out and, and using Well, them. like, you know, the probably the most successful investing group that I've ever heard about is Renaissance. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but um, they have a compounded growth rate in their portfolio of 75% a year now for, I think, well over two decades, ballpark. And, um, and they are quants. I mean, full-on legitimate rocket scientists who are recruited off of the best universities and brought out to Connecticut. There's 300 of these people. Uh, they're mostly guys and they literally do uh, as much quantum or what's the right word? What's quant stand for? Quantitative. Uh, quantitative analysis. Yeah. Right. So they do. And, and what they're trying to do, figure out is where there's an opportunity to arbitrage something. Um, if the weather's bad in Paris, they find that the, you know, at a certain time of the year, then the market does a certain kind of thing and they can bet on it. And they're extremely good at it. So I'm going to presume that those guys are way down the road on doing exactly what you're just talking about, um, running these open open models or um, open source into their models. I, but I, does that mean that that we could do that? Like, like would your, could Danielle somehow use open source AI and become a quant, become a, a a an investor who does quantitative analysis and trades four times a week and or five times a day or I mean to completely change the model uh, of investing. Yeah, I, I think these are kind of two different questions. So, like, are they okay? Split them up. What well, are let, well, let 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 let's break it down in, into a couple of things. So, so first off. Becoming more quant-driven as an investor um, may or may not use LLMs, as in what I, I don't know a whole lot about Renaissance, but I do know uh, that they, I mean, they, these guys were doing machine learning when machine learning was not that prevalent out there. So right. they, they started very early. And right. back then there was no, there were no large language models. So they, they're quant in a, in a say, non-text type of way, right? Uh, probably by now they would have added those that unstructured data, which is you know text and kind of extracting insights from that. But they certainly started just with numbers. Basically, numbers were were, were the thing. Um, so, so if we think about becoming a quant investor, just more on the number side, so structured data and less less unstructured data. Uh, yes, I'd say everyone can become a bit more quant. Uh, it doesn't mean to become a quant trader uh, necessarily uh, but um but you can become more quant i think what what needs to happen is well a few things so first off obviously you need access to data um be it market data being company data just data uh and you can probably get a lot of structured data from from public sources uh, i'm sure uh, you know people that invest would have your the regular sources and and 
uh, and, and and those would be, could be very very useful. The second is you need to set up a problem. Now, what is it I'm trying to solve here? Uh, you know, am I trying to predict how large the company is going to be in ten years? Um, what what is it I'm trying to to do with my model? So the model needs to be specified, right? Um, and then probably based on those specifications, you might need to go back to your data and kind of find different sources, fine-tune it, just making sure that you have what you need to, to operate that model. Third is, okay, now you have, you've articulated your AI or your, your ML problem, you have the data available. So now it's all about actually training the algorithm that will make those predictions, right? Will the company grow? Uh, and by how much in, in 10 years' time. Um, and this is where there are now, I suppose, uh, some platforms that allow, let's say, non-data scientist people to actually go and use uh, machine learning. Um, so so what they do is, is it's actually rather interesting. So it's almost like a new field called AutoML. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and and so they create fundamentally. It's a piece of software, obviously, not obviously. But it's a piece of software, and what what it does is, it it leaves all the coding in the background. So basically, you define, you know, which uh, you know input variables or descriptive features you're going to be using. What is it you're trying to predict? If it's a prediction case, uh, as as we were laying laying, laying it uh, uh, out, uh, and then the platform itself will train different types of algorithms and will actually let you know which one of those is a, is the more suitable one as far as performance goes. And you can define which performance criteria you're actually using, but um, it will tell you which one is best. So there's zero code involved in this, zero. Um, uh, because you have that platform basically doing all the coding in the background for you. Do you know uh, what some of those are called if somebody wants to look them up? Uh, well, there's one here in Switzerland, which is called modulus.ai. Uh, modulus. Uh, and is that something that only businesses would use or, or individuals could use as well? I think last time I spoke to them, they were more of a, a B2B um, type of business. Um, but but there's absolutely no reason, because even in a business, right, there's people are using this, right? So... Uh, there will be no reasons to to not be B two C eventually. No. Yeah, I just mean so, in terms of cost and accessibility. Me, well, it sort of makes me wonder if it. I mean, what do you think about this? Is there some kind of metaphor or relationship between um, the history of, let's say, um, movie making and the development of tools? If if we go back right to the 1900s when movies started first being made, they were being made by very few people. And then it started being made by studios and, and individual people didn't make their own movies. And then they had this eight millimeter movie that you could do at home and then videos you could do at home. And then now you can do it on your computer. You can, and your computer will make a nice little home movie for you out of, out of still photos that you've got or right. That's that's a huge evolution, right? Yeah. Is that possible that that's where we're going here for somehow in the investing field? Like right now we got Renaissance at the, let's say they're the pinnacle of successful investors who are using massive amount of data. And 
somehow the machine, we will be building machines, if you will, that will ultimately let a little guy like me or Danielle do the same thing somehow. Like if yeah. I have a clever idea, I've got the tools there to turn it into an investment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly. I, I think it's all about democratizing access to certain technologies. For it. Yeah, right. I mean, take the computer, which, like AI, by the way, is as much of a general purpose technology, meaning you can use it for like, a variety of, of of purposes, right? And uh, and yeah, it started being something that only corporations had. They they took like big rooms. Uh, with elevated you know, floors for all the cabling to go under. They were cooled, you know, they were really cold, those, those rooms uh, back back in the day. But obviously they they were not meant to be in anyone's home. And then here we are today, everyone has their own, you know, laptop or most people would anyway. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's democratizing a technology. I think in this case, because the technology is, uh, let's say it's, it's a, statistical and rather complex at, at times, what democratizing means is a little bit different. It's not a piece of hardware, it's a piece of software. But yeah, it's all about making it simple enough that regular people can actually use it. Yeah. And it's it's like hard to see it. You know, I don't know if you remember this, Danielle and Nunes, but um I may have told you the story of me being back in the 80s with Steve Jobs over at Next Computer, um going through a, a process of putting software on that computer on a company I was funding and I was able to sit in on a meeting of Steve and his top team where he started to describe um, what it will be like in the future to do editing of video yeah. of digital uh, cool stuff. And this was 1988 mm. and he was wow. describing tools that didn't exist yet. I mean, I think they existed over at Pixar, which is how he sort of got into the field. Um, he had invested in Pixar, I think that year roughly, and um, was coming up to speed himself on what was possible to do yeah. with a computer and seeing that it would be brought to the masses, as you say, democratized as a sort of inevitability. And what he said was, you know, the ability to edit a, a document on a computer is something we take for granted now. But yeah. back in the in the late 80s, it was still pretty magnificent at that point. It was kind of like, <laughs> Holy crap! You can, you can put a picture into a document. This is unbelievable. Yeah, magical. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's magical. You can do your own publishing. You could do your own newsletter. Yeah, you could do your own newspaper. I mean, when I was in high school, doing a high school newspaper meant going to a printing house with uh, a bunch of typed out stuff, and then then they would typeset it into these columns and then send it and give it back to you in sticky in sticky paper and you'd peel the back off the sticky paper and paste it to a graphics board uh, get all your columns right and then they put that back to the printer and they would run that thing and that'd be your newspaper for the week yeah yeah and i mean that is just so archaic i mean you can't even imagine that that's what you had to do well but, it's but so that, all extraordinary also that you're saying in 88 steve jobs is telling you about a technology that he only knows through pixar by 95 we had editing software in our house so that's i don't 94 95 exactly. roughly exactly. we yes. had adobe premiere and some massive hard drives well, at, that, at that same <laughs> and time so that's even, what seven years let's say for sure. um 
which is incredibly fast. And yet now technology is moving so much faster. So I think my question for Nuno is, how do we as individuals, and this goes to your question, Dad, how do we as individuals sitting in our living rooms who are not heads of large organizations who can't necessarily contract individually with um, a specialist company in Switzerland, is there a way that we can start to access this sort of technology? Well, it, it will be a little bit harder without those auto ML type of platforms. Okay. You know, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But with auto ML, I mean. Oh, I thought you meant you no, know, without having access to auto ML. No, yeah, absolutely. Because so here's the beauty of what you described, Phil, and 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 what these platforms can do for for uh, democratization of, of AI is that a lot of the value actually that you extract from AI in particular starts with well some level of creativity, meaning here's a problem that I will solve or try to solve through data, right? And and that there, the translation of what is a, say, a business problem or investing problem, translating that onto an AI problem, and they have different articulations. They, they will, you know, if you, if you write them down, they will sound a little bit different. Uh, but that right there, the creativity that needs to happen, right? Uh, to, to unlock the, the potential of AI is absolutely critical. And without that, will be solving relatively obvious problems but it's really you know tapping or allowing people to you know use their creativity and then not worry too much about the execution because the execution becomes just a technical set of steps that some platform will take care yeah, rather exactly. than you coding i feel like a very i feel like a very old guy asking a question like this but I mean, would it be like this? Let's let's say that I'm looking at Tyson Foods. Okay, mm -hmm. so Tyson, the one of the largest meat producers, protein producers in the world, and I want to know first if Tyson will be a much larger company, unspecified larger, but larger in ten years. Uh, number one, and number two, um, what what are they worth? And what I have available, let's say down in the future. What I have available are these little pods of data that I could sort of order up, right, with a click. Um, so I would order up all the Tyson data, go back, every annual reported, ever produced, every quarterly reported, ever produced, every proxy, every letter the CEO wrote, mm -hmm. every uh, transcript from every earnings report, every quarter, back 50 years, okay, or however far back it's got. All right, and that's a button click. Click, it's all there. And then I also want the same thing on every one of their major competitors that's public and everyone that's private that I know of that we can get data for. Click like that. And now go tell me what you can tell me. Is that, so, is that something we're, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, that that is quite quite doable. Let me give you a concrete a couple of examples actually from my professional life. So they're not necessarily investing related, but they do exactly it's right. They describe the process. I, 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 I like to, um, uh, to, to to relay back. So so let's say that I'm a uh, so my client is a, a private bank. They're working on a developing a proposition for a specific segment. Let's leave the segment out now. And the question is very simple. You know how are how how is the behavior of this particular segment different from others? Uh, and and once we understand that, 
is understanding whether those differences are of a large enough magnitude and in areas that the proposition can actually adjust and calibrate and, and, and be tethered to. So how do you approach this? So you take all that, and this is equivalent to your all your data about the company. So you, you take all the behavioral data you can find about that segment and every every other segment uh, that a particular bank is um, is focused on. Then you create a predictive model, right, to to basically predict what segment are we talking about. Now it sounds silly because we know we know which client belongs to which segment, right? But but here's what we are doing. We are using a predictive model to isolate which of those behaviors carry the highest discriminatory signal in terms of being able to identify which segment this is. So, so basically, which behaviors are a bit more unique to that segment as opposed to all the others. Um, and then and then we use that information. Right? So now we know that it's behavior A, B, and C. Now we can focus on that those three behaviors in particular and then customize the proposition uh, to you know, to be sure to be tailored, right? To 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 address the needs that uh, that those behaviors underlie. So, in in your example, right, this would be the equivalent of you take all that data, you understand which or which because not all will be relevant as far as understanding growth, right, or or, or forecasting growth. So you 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 look back to past growth, right? So how the company has grown before. And you just zero in you and you understand which of those uh, from all that data, which are the main levers that actually explain or can help explain that growth the most. And those are the subset that you actually you will be uh, uh, looking to forecast to then understand what is, you know, uh, uh, based on the past effect that these levers have had as far as growth goes in the past. What is you know what is the based on my forecast right or your forecast you know what is the expected growth that I I I can get or this company is likely to achieve in the future and of course you don't just do that for that company as you mentioned you know you you will have all the competitors because somebody's success is not you know is not a standalone thing you no know? if if the competitors do a little bit worse then yeah if I do the right things I'll I'll get my growth but even if I do the right things and others do it better then I I, I get no growth at all so so you do the same for everyone else and then you create uh you know this constellation of you know future growth on any given sector obviously we're talking about com- companies that would be competing with each other so that, that's one way and yeah this this is all quite doable you know as far as uh without code yeah yeah and you've got i mean there's an enormous amount of data that let's let's say as this revolution goes along um rather than just language being poured into one of these ai machines it has all this this numerical data yeah which is the the, the language of business right now it doesn't look like they're very good at numerical data um, understanding what that means relative to trying to figure out what the next word is that you should put into yeah, a sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't really know how much better AI will be at the numbers. Than... It's much better. It's much more developed. Much... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's much more mature as far as, I mean, so the progression is usually, you tend to start using internal structure data. So this is stuff you have your yourself or have gathered. 
maybe from some public sources. And what I mean by structured, it's usually numerical or categorical, could be, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you, you know what each piece of data is, you know exactly what it represents, you know, you know all this. Unstructured is text, for instance. You know, there's a lot of information hidden in text, but you know, you need to go and find it. You don't know, uh, you don't know, uh, you know, exactly where everything is. So let's say using text to. So you you'd say that doing the numbers is easier for AI than doing. Yeah. Language. Yeah, yeah. language okay. is a bit more complicated than than uh, using algorithms that work with numbers or categorical features. So thinking about this really naively, I would think it, it's the other way around in a weird way. And that is that language has structure to it. Like there's, you know, there's a structure to a sentence. And if you've got a ton of sentences, you can sort of learn what that structure could be and then start putting the correct word in next uh, into that structure. But what's the structure of a number? I mean, it's like numbers, they don't have a necessary number that follows some other number. Well, right? I would say I would say the structure is not so much on the number itself, but on the data set. You so so a concrete example. Let's say you're trying to predict GDP growth mm -hmm. based on certain macro variables, macro macro features you 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 use. Uh, I don't know, population growth, uh, savings rates, um, uh, productivity uh, of, of that particular country, uh, linked to productivity, like the education level. I mean, you name it, you can, you can be a big dump of, you know, macro, uh, macro data. Now, what I mean by structured is that you have this huge data set of all these descriptive features, mm -hmm. and you know what each one of them is. So you know exactly... Uh, in time, let's say it's a time series, right? You know exactly how, uh, you know, saving rate has evolved in time. You know exactly how, um, you know, foreign direct investment has evolved in time. So you have all that information and structure is there. And then you can basically use these algorithms to uh, basically zero in on uh, what are those descriptive features that actually carry uh, the most predictive I'm, power I'm in terms of you. GDP. So rather than predicting that the next word is train, you're predicting and the next number. Next number, yes. I'm It'd predicting be very valuable to know that next number, right? Yeah, super valuable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah, mean, okay. there's a That's whole good. field, right? There's a whole field, and I'm I'm an economist by training, so there's a whole field of econometric, which is all about, you know, based on certain uh, you know inputs, predict what what is it, what what should we expect. Uh, you know, demand, supply, price levels, you know, inflation, et cetera, uh, that, that will happen in the economy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, oh, it's very useful. There, I'm just turning around to look for some books and I don't know where. Well, he looks for books. Oh, here it, it is. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. I don't know if you've read this or not. Chaos Kings. No, it's been out. It's been out for quite a while, like 10 years or something. It's an old book. And I got onto it because I've, I'm, fascinated by um, Nicholas Taleb and Mark Spitznagel's success at being able to insure against market crashes using uh, put options. And I thought, and this book's about those guys um, basically going out to try to tame chaos, right? And be able to make great returns when all of a sudden you have a big black swan event happen. And um, there's 
a scientist in in France who I'll, I'll try to find his name right now, who believed that he'd come up with a way to see that the turbulence would start up in the, we're talking in the markets here, turbulence would start up in a way he could see it numerically mm-hmm. before the black swan happened. And he really truly believed he had, this is as of 2013 that he had the answer and yet had not been able to really benefit from the 2007, 2008 crash. Didn't, really call it called it a little bit but didn't really call it whereas spitznagel and talib nailed it and just made billions and billions of dollars and the the point i'm trying to ask you about is this talib and spitznagel think there is no way on earth that you can predict some major dislocation in the market you can't do it um and that thinking that you can do it has been the result of a lot of hedge funds exploding <laughs> or, uh, that are leveraged up. So will AI, do you think AI has a shot at actually making Talib, changing Talib's mind about something like that? It is possible. Uh, and, and the reason why I think it's possible, and I, I have no idea what their approach was. I don't know if it involved AI or, or, or not, but w- the, the real, I mean, the- no, well, their, their approach was really simple. Just keep buying puts all the time. In other <laughs> words, their approach is literally car insurance. You don't know when you're going to crash. You may never crash, but you better have car insurance all the time. And that's what they do. They provide that insurance policy. That's so it's it. A, it's, a, it's, it's a blanket strategy. It's not, it's it's not really. Strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not trying to not trying to guess at all. Yeah. And being wrong ninety five percent of the time. Yeah. So I I think the in though in that particular instance I think yes I think AI could feasibly you know help um, for two reasons one is dimensionality uh, and the other one is has to do with sort of the type of function it creates what I mean by dimensionality so what's, what's what's what is it again the, that word uh, dimensionality and the, dimensionality the, okay dimensionality yeah and what I mean by dimensionality is this is that when we're trying to understand the levers of in this case, uh, you know, a, a market index, I suppose, or no, I don't know exactly what what yeah. they were. And let's say the market index. Yeah. An index, yeah. Um, so we're trying to predict that that index, and that's let's say that's what what is called like a target feature, right? That's what the, the outcome we're trying to predict. Now, to predict that, we will use, and this is back to the the, the stuff we were discussing before. We use copious amounts of data, and it's called those our descriptive features, right? Now, the number of descriptive features you can put in is, I mean, it's not infinite because there's something called the curse of dimensionality. We don't need to get to that, but, but it can be very, very large. Uh, meaning that you can be using relevant levers, um, in a large enough number that you start extracting meaning from what would be an otherwise incomplete modeling of that particular target feature like right, that, that, that we're trying to predict so yeah. so it allows a, it, it really is a little bit agnostic provided you have a deep enough data set uh, but it's a little bit agnostic to how many uh descriptive uh, features you end up using and because of that you can actually use more uh rather more than, than less the second reason why it could be quite powerful also is because of the um, 
to the nature of the function that is established between those descriptive features and the target feature, right? So, I mean, I mentioned, you know, econometrics earlier. Uh, econometrics is, is a way of describing, you know, the behavior of economic agents uh, in isolation and as an aggregate, uh, but in through equations, through parametric functions. You know, that, that's what an equation is. Like there's a finite, you know, set of, set of parameters. Now, machine learning, uh, and depending on the algorithm, but it it really creates a function that establishes that relationship between the descriptive feature and the target feature, but creates a function that is non-parametric. And that is incredibly powerful because that relationship can be, can be described in just about, you know, if it's a, a neural network through, a, you know, a mechanism of, of weightings and activation uh, uh, nodes, uh, sorry, activation functions on, on the nodes. If it's a random forest, it's about... Um, and a hierarchical uh, relationship between those uh, those descriptive features in a like Bayesian type of logic. Anyway, it's just sorry, I'm being a little bit uh, uh, obscure here with all no, these technicalities. I've, I've, I've actually read some of those words before. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really understood. I think the the Bayesian. I got I got on the Bayesian. That was good. Yeah, yeah. So the words don't don't really matter. The point is that because you move away from describing a relationship based on an equation, you gain a lot of uh, power uh, by doing so. And, th and that's that's one of the beauties actually of, 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 uh, of some of these machine learning algorithms. Actually, you can really move away from uh, that you know, linearity or quasi-linearity that usually comes with these, these parametric models. So yeah, it's feasible to think that because you, you bring in more levers, right, that can explain that particular index, you know, the behavior of a particular index. And because you describe the relationship between those levers and the index itself in a different way, that you can extract some meaningful uh, you know, predictions or understanding of what drives... And like we were talking before, doesn't that depend on the humans defining those parameters? Yeah. I was going to say well, it... but not necessarily differently, yeah. well, better. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And this is where the creativity yeah. I, I mentioned earlier yes. comes in. Let, let, let me give you an example. And again, it's from my professional background, but I, I was... In the context of uh, this project of you know Salesforce effectiveness, which was all about helping, um, helping uh, uh, you know relationship managers for a private bank do better uh, work, and one of the pain points that was identified was client retention. So basically, they were not you know being good enough at retaining clients, even if they were good at everything else, which they weren't. But that's not the point. Now. It was decided that you no, know, okay, let's develop uh, a client attrition algorithm, meaning a, an algorithm that will predict the likelihood of each individual client leaving the bank in three months' time. So you want to predict early enough, right, that there's still some goodwill uh, that if you call the client and kind of talk things through, still, you can still still might like you a little. Exactly. Bit. There's right. there's there's right. some some lingering goodwill is still there. <laughs> uh, uh, so so. Okay, very long story, but the point is that into that particular algorithm, 47%, let's say, let's run it up, like five, half of the predictive power that went into the algorithm came from descriptive features that were engineered, meaning these are not, it is not data you just get from systems or, or external sources or whatever. This, these are features you actually 
create yourself. You engineer them. And, and, and this requires some creativity because you need to imagine, oh, so wait, I, I, I'm looking at a behavior, let's say a trading behavior is one of, um, one of the relevant ones. But how am I describing this behavior in time such that the algorithm actually extracts some meaning out of this, right? And you can say, okay, what was the average trading in the uh, observation period you have there? But you could also, and this is where the creativity comes in, ask, you know, ask an answer. So is there a trend uh, in that behavior, positive and negative? What is the slope uh, if, if, if a trend is there? Is it a monotonic trend, meaning does it go up all the time or down all the time? What is the noise or uh, variance around that trend? Because you, know, you can get a trend just because randomly somebody went up and down and up and down, et cetera, and you still get a trend, but it's, it's not really, you know, human, you know, purposely kind of caused. Whereas if you have a low variance around the trend, then <laughs> you can you can actually infer a bit more intention, uh, right, in terms of driving a certain uh, behavior up or down. Uh, again, I'm, I'm getting too point, technical. Point, but being, point being, we can we could potentially see that trend. If I've got this right, we, we could potentially see that trend as a result of the enormous amount of data that, that we can pour in which we can use our skill set to determine which data goes in there. Yeah. And then and, manipulate it. To and then point. manipulate it. Exactly. That's the, that's the engineering part. But, so, and that, but that takes creativity, right? You, it's not something that just comes off the shelf like that. You need to work with it. Um, right. So yeah, to, to your question, uh, Daniel, absolutely. You know, creativity is absolutely key in making these models more accurate and more, more usable. And I just think that's the part that gets missed a lot in, both in people who are trying to understand it and don't know a lot about it, that they just think like, oh, you put all this data in and the computer does magical things and then it comes out and predicts whether or not the market's going to crash. But yeah. no, it's no. because humans set up the descriptive <laughs> feed. No, we want yeah. to know that. But what I'm saying is the way that you get there is not the computer magically does it. It's the humans have set up the descriptive features Maybe in a way nobody's ever done it, and that's exactly. how they get results that nobody's ever achieved. Exactly. So it's it's very like beautiful in a way, and scientific and artistic, and I think it's very cool. But and and this is where we talked about earlier, kind of tapping on all that creativity while at the same time uh, making the process of developing the algorithms irrelevant, right? Because everyone. Feel, I mean, in the business context or investing context, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, they're one and the same, actually, but you know, uh, or could be one and the same. The point is, we all, as humans, in our professional activities um, or personal activities, we all feel pain points, right? Now, we don't need to be computer scientists to use your, our creativity to think about how can we solve these pain points through the use of data and AI, and then just leave the coding aspect to a platform or, you know, if you can hire somebody, great, but uh, to somebody that actually knows that. But without enabling uh, people, like common people like us, right, to uh, to uh, to not care about the implementation aspect of, of machine learning, then, you know, people have little incentive to think about how would I solve this pain point through the use of data and end up not not really tapping on on that that creativity so yeah it, it's just 
the democratization of, of ML, I think it's like an incredibly powerful thing to happen because it will allow everyone to actually think about their pain points in a little bit, in a slightly different fashion and probably solving them, you know, in a yeah. more effective way. Is there somewhere that I can go now? Like, what do I type into Google or my, you know, and, the, and then we've got browser? We, we got to go. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we can we can stop now, and I can ask this yet again. <laughs> well, another... well, or maybe you can just tell me the answer. What do I type in? I, I'm typing it right now. So I just wrote AutoML platform. Um, I know even Google has like a basic, yeah, AI ML Google thing has... that you can use, which I've tried to use, and is I don't know. Didn't want to be, want to be really sneaky and force everybody to go over to the website and get this information. <laughs> because I don't, I think reading this out isn't going to be really useful while people are yeah. driving to work. Yeah. If you yeah. don't have a, a go-to, then I would say that it, it just doesn't exist at this point. Or let's, let's noodle that around with, with Nuno later and, and maybe we can put it up on the website if there is something, but I think we got to, we got to bail and man, um, this was such a major subject. I don't even know how to wrap this up. I mean, well, I need to wrap it up though. So is good. the answer that you don't have a go-to place for, for me, literally me to go and uh, try to create a one uh, investing research related. Yeah. Use case. Algorithm. So, yeah. So I, I think probably there is, I mean, I, I don't know enough about the marketplace to be able to answer that. Okay. That said, if we add another dimension, which is time, even if there isn't right now, chances are there will be, you know, soon enough because these things tend to start as B2B and, and we know those exist. So like AutoML platforms as B2B, yeah. the B2C, I guess it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you, Thank you. What, I, what I feel like is like I felt when I was listening to Steve Jobs talk about the future of uh, digital editing and creating your own home movies, uh, it just seemed it, it didn't seem impossible. It seemed like it's really hard to get my head around it because I, I don't have that, the experience with the idea enough to know, but I guess I could see that some point in time, you know, we're not going to be making epic features that are going to go into the movie theater. Fine. But we will be doing TikTok. <laughs> there's, some, there's some version of this. That's the TikTok version that, really makes us money. And I, I think that that's coming. I actually do. I don't know what that is yet, but I suspect it's coming and we'll make money with it. So <laughs> thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it no, so much. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it, it, it is interesting to get these questions in a different environment or different context from the one I'm, I'm used to. Um, and certainly with a different target audience also. That's, that's super interesting. <laughs> Very different audience. Very different. <laughs> Sure. Thanks, um, any last points you want to make, Nuno, before we sign off? Uh, no, I mean it, it, it's certainly uh, it's certainly a fascinating area, and I, I, you know, if if anyone's curious about it, uh, if it's definitely worth some time investment into looking into the types of problems AI can help with. I think that's a good starting point. What is that the technology can help me solve? And then cre creatively thinking about their own situation, their own context, their own pain points, and how is it I could solve this in a uh, quant uh, and ML enabled way. Yeah. But okay. It always helps to have a, a son-in-law who's a genius. 
So I, no, I love no. you, man. I really do. You have and, another one? Oh, you do have another one. Actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And um, maybe I He's can prevail upon you or Danielle can to uh, to to maybe put a list of things together that we should go be looking at uh, that would help us with what you just said. That would be awesome. And we'll get that up on the website, huh, Danielle? Yeah. A few references, yeah. Well, you know, I've been asking for a while now, so I'm not promising anything. Okay. But we'll, I'll, I'll do my absolute best. Don't and make it me may come be... to Switzerland. She has leverage. She, she has leverage. So I guess that. Uh, I don't know. It took Absolutely. me like two months to get you on the podcast after Use we first started talking about this. Use the leverage, Danielle. <laughs> get this done. All right, you guys. Until next time. time Thanks, to everybody. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.